0: Please open your bibles if you have one to the 49th psalm, psalm 49. You'll find the notes of this morning's message in your bulletin. If you don't have a bible, you'll find the text for psalm 49 on the back of the bulletin. I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading psalm 49. Psalm 49. <clears throat> a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perishes. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts, like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death, shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. Salah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man and his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Lord God, give us ears to hear this wisdom, this insight. Give us understanding. That we might pursue those things of true value and substance in this life. That we would have one who would redeem us. One who would receive us. So help us to learn what you have for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now our psalm breaks neatly, I think, into three sections. We have Wisdom's Call. This is a wisdom psalm. If you didn't pick up on that in the first Four verses, I think is quite clear, a wisdom's call in the first four verses, and then in 5 to 12, wisdom's counsel, and in 13 to 20, wisdom's caution. And those second two sections have a lot of parallelism, a lot of similarity. Most notably, they both end with a common refrain. Look at verse 12, ending what I've suggested is the first major section, or actually the second division, but... First section of teaching. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. With verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, there's that pit that's different. Is like the beasts that perish. They both deal with a common problem. Verses five and six. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Verse 16: Be not afraid when a man becomes rich. And both deal with the issue of being ransomed. Verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another, verse 15, but God will ransom my soul. So in each of the two major sections, section two and three, those similarities show up. So we'll dive right in with wisdom's call, wisdom's call. Now the psalmist, we don't know the dates. The sons of Korah were a psalm writing, psalm arranging group descending all the way back to Korah, who is a contemporary of Moses. Remember the ground opened up and swallowed him up because he challenged Moses Well, he had some children who remained who wrote and arranged psalms. But the topic here is timeless. This is one of those psalms where I think it matters very little if this was written before the exile, during the Davidic reign, or during the later reign, or in Babylon. These are timeless truths. In fact, that's kind of the the point of the opening call. Um, In fact, your first point here, one, is its scope, the scope of the call. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. This isn't a national call. This is a a wisdom song that extends beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the border of nations. It's global in its scope. All people, great and small, rich and poor, both low and high, rich and poor together. So, The psalm is addressing all peoples without distinction, without political allegiance, without view of wealth or greatness relatively in the world. This is a psalm and a wisdom instruction for all peoples. And so it's quite broad in its scope. This is a similar type of appeal as we see in other wisdom literature. Just listen to... The opening of Proverbs chapter one, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the marketplace, she raises her voice at the head of the noisy street. She cries out at the entrance of the city gate. She speaks. How long, O simple ones, we love being simple. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. If you turn to my reproof, I'll pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. So this is free wisdom. And yet there's a sense in which the psalmist needs to compel. Because the topic of this psalm is not one people like to think about. So I think part of the reason we get four verses of appeal, of a flashing beyond signs, or heads up, I'm about to say something very important. Everyone, Israelite, Philistine, doesn't matter. Old, young, rich, poor, powerful, or weak. The scope of this psalm and its wisdom is, is global. It encompasses all humanity. And then in verses Two, I mean three through four, we get some of the content. So the first two verses, who's to listen? Everybody. Second, the content. Said in a number of ways, my mouth will speak wisdom. The meditations of my heart shall be understanding. I'll incline my ear to a proverb and I will solve my riddle. to the music of a lyre. So we've got wisdom, understanding, a proverb, and a solved riddle. And what the psalmist, I think, is undertaking is trying to resolve one of life's great conundrums, one of life's great difficulties. Um, The issue faced in this psalm, the resolution given, is is one that has vexed and troubled man of all ages, of all climates. In fact, the, the history of written humanity testifies to the global scope of this issue. What do we make of the injustices in life? What do we make of, of the wealth and the power? The, we've looked even in weeks past, the, the frailty, the fleetingness of life, the inequalities in life. How do we make sense of that? How do we deal with that fear that can come upon us? So that's, that's the call of wisdom. The sons of Korah make it clear for everybody, and we're going to deal with a heavy, serious riddle of a topic. So we should expect great things in the rest of Psalm 49, which brings us then point two to wisdom's counsel, wisdom's counsel. And in verses five and six, I think we get the problem addressed or one way of looking at the problem. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? So what's the problem? Simply put, my fear of the wicked rich in times of trouble problem being dealt with, is in difficult times in life, dealing with, interpreting, dealing with the fear, the anxiety that comes from being surrounded by the wicked rich in times of trouble. Why should I fear? That's the question that's being answered. And of course, it assumes we're tempted to fear, right? Why? why? There's plenty of reasons, in one sense, to be afraid when you're poor, when you're not powerful, and when times are difficult and you're surrounded by wicked, powerful, wealthy people. And he goes on to give some reason why. One, their iniquity and oppression is pervasive. Their iniquity and oppression is pervasive. When their iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. Now, I'm going to do something a little different than I usually do this morning and actually going to the New Testament repeatedly. Normally, in interpreting the, the text, I try to deal with what's called antecedent scripture. The scripture that's come before, what, what might the sons of Korah have in mind? Well, they don't have in mind James, because James hasn't been written yet, right? Fair enough. But one of the things I want to show you is that this issue that this psalm deals with is pervasive, and it's pervasive throughout scripture. It's not simply a matter taken up by the psalms. It's not simply a matter taken up by Proverbs. It's, it's a matter the New Testament is greatly concerned with. We live in a day and age where where social justice is a great concern, and I, I tend to think many who I've seen interacting with it are not framing it properly, but there still is a real concern we ought to have for the injustice and the potential of the wicked and the powerful to oppress and rob the poor. Just because you may not agree with how it's being framed doesn't mean we should just ignore such claims. These things should concern us when they are taking place when people are being cheated, especially the powerless are being cheated by the powerful when the poor are being cheated by the rich. Wherever that is taking place, and of course the debate is where and is it taking place, but wherever it is taking place, we ought to be concerned. Turn, turn to James chapter 5. You'll read a scathing rebuke. Just to show you, this is something the New Testament community, the church He's grappling with that God cares about and believers of all ages ought to be concerned about. James chapter five, look at the first six verses. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire? Why? What have these people done? You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So this is a grievous evil throughout human history. James is condemning the wicked and powerful rich in their abuse and the way they take advantage of. Now here we're dealing with real defrauding, real robbery. People are work They're not paid. And this is clear theft. The issue isn't simply you're wrong because you have money. The issue here is real injustice, real defrauding, real cheating. But when it happens, when it's really taken place, it is detestable. And scripture rails against it. It is no small thing. And so you can imagine, well, why someone might be vexed if that's happening to you. Imagine some powerful, maybe some of you don't even have to imagine, maybe it's actually happened. Someone more powerful than you, someone higher up in the company ladder, someone with more position and clout than you, has cheated you, treated you unjustly, has gotten a position you were vying for, has made your life on the job hard. I don't know, there's many ways this can happen. And when those things happen, we are tempted to fear and be upset and anxious and troubled. Which brings to another point I just want to pause and make here, which is the Bible deals with these emotional issues. Last week, Mitchell um, spoke about the Bible's counsel for fear. And I I want to explain to you how how this works. The Bible assumes, and I think human history bears us out that one of the primary ways we deal with our emotional state we can't simply reach in and turn off anger and turn off fear and turn off jealousy it would be nice if we could we can't is our feelings flow from our thoughts and our beliefs and so if you've got feelings that are raging within you that ought not to be there one of the primary ways to address them is to lead your thoughts into what is true and right as particularly as it relates to how you're feeling and your heart will fall in line like a caboose of a train. So often in our culture, we, we have the, the emotions be the 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 cabin, the, the engine that drives the train. It leads where we're going. You follow your heart. Biblically, no, 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 no. You lead your heart. You shepherd your heart. And you do that by reading truth. And so the psalmist is going to lay out a number of truths And the way this counsel is taken, if you struggle with these things, these are truths to dwell on, to meditate on, to ponder, to think about. And as you do, your anxiety, your fear, your anguish should lessen, lower, as you think about these truths. So that's the problem. The anxiety, the anguish, the sense of wrong, when the wicked rich cheat and oppress... Moreover, not only do they oppress and cheat, but they boast, right? Look at verse 6, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. We're getting a greater caricature of these people. And if only we could think of some New Testament examples of this. Like, say, a rich man who had a bumper crop and built a tower, as you remember from Luke chapter 12, Right? These, these are issues common to life. They show up not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And these people seem powerful and they're confident in what they have and, and their money and their clout can get some things done, can accomplish things. They can throw you in prison. They can take your job. They can take your, in certain countries, in certain times, they can completely oppress you. There is cause in one sense, humanly speaking, to see the cause for anxiety. And yet this psalm is going to say, don't be afraid. Don't let it trouble you. That's the riddle that's to be solved. That's the, the, the issue that's taken up and an answer to be given. So that's the problem. My fear, your fear, the wicked rich in times of trouble. They boast in their possessions. They, they take great confidence in the things they have, and they have a lot. They cheat. It's all around. They surround. You can't get away from them. Well, his answer is, is blunt and to the point, and it's the answer given again and again in Scripture, which, again, when things get repeated, suggests we need to dwell on this more. And these are the truths we don't like to dwell upon. Because here's the answer. Very simply, they're all going to die. You're going to die, too. So ultimately, earthly riches are ultimately worthless. That's the answer. Earthly riches are ultimately worthless. Now, ultimately is the key word there. Ten million years from now, however much money you currently have in the bank now will matter nada. It'll matter nothing. Moreover, your riches will have no bearing directly on how you spend the eternity. So neither will they profit you in the next life, nor will they have any direct bearing upon your next life. They can have plenty of indirect bearing. So the answer given is here. Look verse 7, 8, and 9. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. and He should live on forever and never see the pit. So answer, earthly riches are ultimately worthless. Why are they ultimately worthless? One, they cannot ransom the soul. They cannot ransom the soul. And I, and I tell you, when we think of... Even secular examples entertaining this. You think of the story of Faust, who who gets all the riches and power of the world and forfeits his soul and comes to regret it. Jesus, speaking memorably in Luke chapter 9, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit? A man, if he gains the whole world, loses or forfeits himself. There is no amount of money, there is no amount of wealth, That can buy your soul, that can pay your debt, that can redeem yourself. What the psalmist is saying is don't be alarmed at people who have clout and power in things that are ultimately unimportant. Because this category of money has no bearing on the redemption of the soul. It has no bearing on the redemption of the soul. It cannot buy its way out of judgment. It's totally different categories. Secondly, wealth and riches are worthless ultimately because they cannot deliver from death. So you can't ransom your soul with them. You can't ransom the soul of another from them. The indulgent seller should, should have paid notice to this. You can't buy someone else's redemption. You can't buy your own. And you can't even escape death. Now, yes, with enough money, you might be able to prolong your life a little bit, but in the scope of things in an insignificant way. Joseph Stalin is just as dead as all the millions he killed, even if he lived a few years longer than some of them. The ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. And this is one of the things that can trouble tech billionaires. They know they're headed for death. All man is headed for death. These are things, again, we don't like to think about, but this is where the answer lies. The answer does not lie in, in creating some just system that balances things out and redistributes wealth. Now, if, where there's been injustice, by all means, deal with it. But the solution of this vexing problem will not come in the prosecution of the wicked and the unjust. The solution comes in viewing life as a bigger entity than simply the 70 or 80 or 90 years you get here and now. The solution comes only when you look at life as a eternal and unending thing that transitions from this world to the next. Earthly riches are ultimately worthless because they cannot ransom the soul, and they do not deliver from death. Then he goes on to explain this further in verses ten and eleven. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their Dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. So three truths about death. First, death is universal. Death is universal. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse two. Um, again, these are truths we don't like to think about. Ecclesiastes t- t- instructs us, and I oftentimes will cite this at a funeral. It's better in regards to wisdom to go to a funeral than a wedding. Do you know that the Bible is it's better to go to a funeral than a wedding? Why? Because you will be faced with these issues at a funeral in a way that you will not at the wedding. Ecclesiastes 7-2 is better to go to the house of mourning and to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. The living don't want to lay the to heart. They don't, We don't want to think about our mortality. We don't want to think. I don't want to think that statistically I am more than halfway through my life. It's not a comforting thought. And so we ignore these things. We, t- we just deceive ourselves into thinking we'll live forever in this life. But yet we're counseled to think precisely about these things to help us put into perspective the greatness of the trouble and the injustices of of the wicked and the wealthy. Death is universal. We see that both the wise and the fool alike perish. Um, Death is eternal. And all I mean by that is the next phase of existence is eternal. Once you die, you go on, and where you go on to, you will remain forever. There's not a next step after that, and there's no returning here. Once you make the transition from this life to the next, you are in a permanent abode. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, and there's the irony, right? It doesn't matter how great and powerful you are, the beggar and the king likewise go down to the earth. There's a, a famous poem written by Shelley um, named Ozymandias. It's short. I want to read it briefly. If you'd like to hear it later, my son and my mother could both be happy to quote it for you. Um, and, and it highlights, again, I'm talking about how universal, how human this is. Um, a, uh, a, a sculpture, a statue of Ramses II, whose Greek name is Ozymandias, was being taken to the British Museum in 1818. And uh, Shelley, inspired by the inscription on the statue of Ozymandias, according to the Greek historian, uh, Diodorus Siculus, the inscription was, King of kings, Ozymandias am I, if you want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. And the irony being this, this bold declaration is on a statue that's in the middle of the desert. It's broken and it's chipped. And so Shelley writes this poem highlighting this. it's short, I'll read it to you. I met a traveler from an ancient land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. So he describes a broken statue. There's just the bottoms of the legs in the middle of the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. There's the head, a couple feet away, half shattered. Whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor knew well the passion's Tell that it sculptors well those passions read, which yet survived, stamped upon these lifeless things. It basically says the sculptor did a very good job of conveying the contempt, the arrogance, the pride of this statue. The hand that mocks them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. In his day, Ramses II was potentially the mightiest man in the world. The Egyptian empire at its height was the greatest empire at that time in the world. Here's the ruler of it. He's constructed pyramids. He has millions of slaves, and he erects this statue declaring his greatness, imagining his kingdom and his fame will endure forever. And Shelley has to take it from a Greek historian who found the statue crumbled and alone in a wasteland. That's the fate of man. Doesn't matter how great you are. You may be Ozymandias, you may be the king of the kings on the earth, and your kingdom will crumble. It is dust. This is the answer to the inequality, to the corruption, to the cheating in iniquity, in life, getting a long view of life. Death is eternal. Death is forgetful. It's not the best fit, but how do you say death erases? Death and time erode and destroy just as time destroyed the statue of Ramses. You can imagine it built in the middle of a thriving kingdom, only later to be found by a traveler broken and barren in the middle of a desert. Turn turn to Ecclesiastes, and we're going to look at a couple passages in Ecclesiastes in the next couple points. Turn to Ecclesiastes um, chapter 2, where Solomon meditates on this same truth. Death's universality, and the fact that death ultimately erodes and swallows up your accomplishments, it swallows up your, your work, your effort. Ecclesiastes 2 starting in verse 14. The wise person has his eye in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceived the same event happened to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Death is Eternal and death is forgetful. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter nine. Starting in verse three, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. My name is Ozymandias. Look upon my works, you mighty in despair. Who? Guessing most of you didn't know who Ozymandias was. He thought he was a big deal. These are the truths to consider to put things into proper perspective. If you are vexed, viewing yourself as having been wronged, vexed, how your life has turned out, where your life is, put it in its broader scope. Even if you could achieve everything you dreamed, even if you could achieve all the accomplishments of production and wealth and power and clout, they're ultimately meaningless. Which brings us then to the first refrain back in Psalm 49. Here's a sort of summary of this first section. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish, even if you have lands named after yourself, he says in verse 11. Though they called lands by their own names, man in this pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. The, the refrain, man is as fleeting as any beast. And this is, if if we're not putting God into the picture, if this life is all we're There is. And this is the key to understanding what Ecclesiastes says. If we're keeping our eyes under the sun, if this life is all there is, then it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. It's better to be a living pauper than a dead king. (coughs) And Ozymandias or Ramses is just as significant as a dead dog on the side of the road. Man in all his pomp. Will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And that sends the first section, wisdom's counsel. Now let's move to wisdom's caution. And while you turn, I'll read you one more section from Ecclesiastes drawing the same conclusion. Listen to Ecclesiastes three eighteen through 20. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the child of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. If you're keeping your focus under the sun. This, by the way, is one of the, one of the things you can offer your unbelieving friend, hope. Um, the unbelieving world... Resist resists the inevitable conclusion, but it is inevitable that if there is no God, if all there is is time, matter, and chance, then these conclusions of meaninglessness have no answer. Because the universe doesn't care. And we're just stardust on one star at one moment, and the universe will go on and on and on forever and ever, world without end, amen, and you don't matter and I don't matter. And there is no justice and there is no meaning. There's a name for that worldview, it's called Nihilism. And the author of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with that. And so we tend to get caught up in what we're doing, the things we're about, which we saw, Ramses, Ozymandias, thought he was a big deal, and his name is all but forgotten. And so we do all to remember our fleetingness, our temporalness, our insignificance. If we're going to find significance, it's not going to be in our accomplishments on earth. If we're going to find significance, it's not going to be in our wealth, and our power, we'd have to find it somewhere else. So now we get to Wisdom's caution, verses thirteen through twenty. Thirteen to twenty. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Salah, like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol for no, with no place to dwell. Okay. So we're going examine two paths: first, the path of foolish confidence and public praise, the path of foolish confidence and public praise. Now because people don't want to think about these things, the world will applaud the rich and the powerful. You can get TV shows, reality shows, if you're wealthy enough. you can be despicable, you can be um, facile, you can be shallow, you can be an idiot. But if you are somewhat wealthy or good looking or charismatic, you can get a TV. You, we can, the world will tune in, the world will applaud. You can make more money and get on the cover of magazines. That changes nothing. It doesn't matter if all the other dead dogs think you're a big deal, because they're all dead dogs too. That, that's the logic. In Ramsey's day, the people in Egypt thought he was a big deal. They would applaud. They're dead and forgotten as well. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them, people approve of their boasts, the law. The reality, instead of someone to boast, someone to applaud, they are sheep appointed for Sheol. Then in a dramatic and ironic statement, death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. They are shepherded by death. That is sort of a powerful word picture. Uh, you picture the sheep that's being fed and fattened up, thinking what a big deal they are. Look at all this work and attention going to give me food. Look at all this work and attention giving me the choice food. I must be a big deal. You know, we can see they're headed to slaughter. That's, that's the picture here. Imagine the sheep congratulating themselves on how much weight they've gained, how much food they've consumed, and yet from another vantage point, these are people being shepherded by death. It's a similar word picture to one used in in Proverbs chapter six, Um, in Proverbs chapter six, describing the uh, adulterous woman or her steps go down to Sheol. And it's just a picture, the irony being of unwittingness. They think they're one thing, and here's the reality. The values of the world system, the values that exalt wealth and power, that seek the praise and the approval of man, is the path of death. And they don't know it. These people who are messing with your life, who are taking advantage of you, they're on a road shepherded and led to by death and to death. They are sheep appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. The upright shall have dominion over them. That word for dominion, I think, is victory. Better translated, victory. And it's this picture, again, of the reversal. And again, we've got a wonderful picture of that in the New Testament, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, don't we? Rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus sits outside of the rich man's gate. He is has his sores licked by his dogs, he'd eat the scraps from his table, and yet in the afterlife, after death, there's this great reversal, the rich man is powerless, he can't leverage all of his possessions to get a drop of water for his tongue. And there's Lazarus, being comforted and exalted in a place of honor. The way to deal with the injustices of life, the inequalities in life and in particular the injustice of the wicked rich is to remember there's a life after this and their rank and exaltation and this life will not carry over their money cannot buy their redemption their money cannot buy them immortality and even though they're going along this road with the applause and the praise of man well done we'll put you on another magazine cover the one leading the parade has a sickle and a black cloak They're being shepherded by death to Sheol. And then we get to another path, a very different path with a very different end. Now, hearkening back to 7 and 8, in contrast to this, um, their form should be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Um, Sorry before we get to that next point. And ultimately, I think that picture's back to them being forgotten and dissolved away. The Hebrew concept for glory is weight or heaviness, substance, and here's a picture of them being dissolved and eroded away. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. The path of upright confidence, the path of upright confidence. Here are two wonderful declarations. If money and power are ultimately worthless and if no consequence, then what is? What is of consequence is if you can make these next two declarations. This is what matters right here. But... God will ransom my soul. That's what matters. You can make that declaration. God will ransom my soul. Now it's not clear that the sons of Korah have a full understanding of how exactly it is that God will ransom their soul. We, this side of the cross, we can hear the words of our Savior. In Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to serve Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God will ransom my soul. God has ransomed my soul. Hallelujah. These are the things that matter. Or the next. One group is being led to Sheol by death, where they will be dissolved away. Here, God will receive me. He will welcome me. God will not simply ransom my soul and then sort of cast me off to live somewhere. He receives me. He welcomes me in. These are the things that matter. These are the inequalities that will last forever. The unequal outcome of those who trust in riches and those who trust in the living God. And they're the ones that matter. God will receive me. Think of Psalm Seventy three, and afterward you will receive me to glory. By the way, this notion of reception is similar, I think, to the way that um, John 1.12 uses it. it. Talks about those who receive Jesus. It's not receiving like a package. God won't receive you like someone receiving a post office package. God will receive you like a wedding reception, like a father who runs out to meet his prodigal son, receives him. God will receive you that way. And that is how you should receive him. These are the realities that matter. I mean, understand, there are going to be kings and tyrants and rulers in hell, and there will be poor nobodies in glory for eternity. And in light of those realities, you should calm your soul. In light of those realities, if, if you can say, God will ransom my soul, God will receive me, then you are richer than Bill Gates. You have a better hope and a better future than Ozymandias himself. And that's, that's the contrast. The solution is not found in some work you can do here and now. There's some utopian social justice there. Those things may be good where we find injustice. The solution to these things, which are inevitable, is in a long view of history and life. And in knowing where you are headed and knowing who has bought and redeemed and ransomed you. And after making these statements, we now return to the fearful fate of the rich and powerful. I think it's a, I'm think trying to do a word play here. The first question is don't be afraid. Why should I be afraid? Verse 16, do not be afraid. The reality is rather than fearful in the sense of I should be afraid of them, when we truly understand their fate, we should fear in a different sense. It is a fearful thing to behold these people walking in a parade of applause and aplomb and approval with the grim reaper leading the group on a road to hell. Be not afraid when man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he, will die, when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. Though you get praised when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light the fearful fate of the rich and powerful. They will leave everything behind. We, we know there are no U Haul trucks behind hearses, right? And even Ramses himself, the Egyptians had a practice. They tried to do this. They tried to bury themselves with their riches, with their possessions, but their possessions are still here. We can put them in museums, and they're in the pit, they're in Sheol. Their spirit has gone to another place. You cannot take it with you. You cannot. Their glory, not Not only can you not take your riches with you, you can't take your accomplishments. There will not be big dogs in hell. Their glory will not go down after them. I mean, I think some people even arrogantly say I'll go to hell but they imagine they'll sort of be a big person in hell it's outer darkness and gnashing of teeth it's not a social club and there are not like rankings and you know clout in hell no there's utter brokenness and desperation their money stays behind their glory stays behind it will not go down after him they will leave everything behind Which again is the point of the parable in Luke 12 of the rich man who builds the tower and God says, you fool. Whose will these things be now? This very night your soul is required of you. They will never again see light. They will never again see light. And again, the contrast. Though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. We've seen other people count him as blessed. This is the mass delusion. The, The rich and powerful person thinks he's doing well and everyone's telling him he's doing well. Be that as it may, though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. They'll be cast to outer darkness. And the picture of light is tied closely with life, as Job 33.30 makes clear. To bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. That's, that's the fate, that's the solution. Which brings us to our refrain one more time with a critical addition. In verse 12, man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beast that perish. And we see there, okay, man is as fleeting and ultimately as weighty as a beast. Now there's a critical addition added. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding. It's like the beast that perish. To which I make the new refrain, ignorant man is as fleeting as any beast. This is the same answer the book of Ecclesiastes comes up with. In light of these realities, in light of the fleetingness of life, in light of the fact that your possessions do not go with you, your achievements, your accomplishments do not go with you, you leave them behind Then you would do well to heed the counsel of Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Don't be ignorant, man. Be mindful of these. Hear wisdom's call. Change your priorities. Don't race after wealth and power race after how you might say God will ransom my soul we're going to sing our closing song in just a moment but let me, let me spell that out crystal clear for you you can know that God has ransomed your soul if you will turn from the things you are trusting and turn from the things you are building your life in, perhaps even these very things this psalm is warning about. Maybe you've made a God of money. You've made a God of achievement or wealth or power. Turn from those false gods and put your trust in the one who died as a ransom. And you can be rich. You can inherit the universe by faith, by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who both lived and died and was raised. You can make this Joyous declaration, doesn't matter that I'm poor, doesn't matter that I'm mistreated, doesn't matter that the rich are oppressing me, God will ransom my soul. He will receive me. They're going to the pit. They're in a big throng being led by death to hell. God will ransom my soul. In that context, we can sing our closing song, All I Have is Christ. I want you to put that in that perspective. There's no other promises in this life other than the promises of persecution, the promises of suffering, the promises of cross-carrying. But you can have Christ, and in Him, you can have everything. I'm going to call the worship team up. Let's close in a word of prayer as we will sing. Lord God, help us to believe this report and not to get caught up in the lies of this world that tell us the true meaning, true value, true purpose, true glory is found in wealth and power and accomplishment. Help us instead to look to you for our joy and our reward, to live for the wealth and riches that you give where moth and rust do not destroy, a treasure laid up for us in heaven, Lord. Help us to search and seek and live after those rewards, your rewards not the praise and the applause of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.